Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, This past weekend, voters in Italy went to the polls for national parliamentary elections. As expected, the elections resulted in a victory for the alliance led by Giorgia Meloni's far-right Brothers of Italy party, which received enough votes to govern without support from the center-left. With Maloney now set to be the country's first female prime minister in a right-wing coalition government, likely to also include Salvini's League and Berlusconi's Forza Italia, significant changes may lie ahead for both Italy and Europe. On the domestic front, there are concerns about the new government's ability to effectively manage the struggling Italian economy, as well as its potential to restrict abortion and LGBT rights. Meanwhile, the right-wing alliance is noted for a more skeptical position towards the European Union, including its desire to assert the primacy of Italian law over EU law. How significant a change this will be for Italy and how we should think about the implications for Europe and the transatlantic community. Uh, We're very glad to have two excellent scholars uh, and analysts with us today to think through these issues. Welcome Natalie Tocci and Cecilia Sadiolata. Um, Natalie, a brief bios, Natalie is director of the Instituto Affari uh, Internazionale and a futures fellow at IWN in Vienna. She was previously special advisor to the EU high representative Federica Mogherini and Joseph Burrell, during which she wrote the European Union's global strategy and worked on its implementation. And Cecilia is an assistant professor at the American University of Rome. She's a leading expert on political risk analysis and is a frequent media commentator on Italian and European affairs. Okay, so where to start? Um, Natalie, maybe I'll turn it over to you first. Maybe you can just set the stage uh, a little bit for us and tell us about the run-up to the election. What was the mood of the campaign? What were the issues that were dominating the dialogue? Well, thanks, Andrea. And and let me sort of start off perhaps by reminding everyone that um, this election happened uh, against the backdrop of the fall of Mario Draghi's government. Uh, And it was a fairly dramatic fall. Uh, And it was dramatic for many reasons, including the fact that, you know, here was probably the most credible, and I would argue best, Prime Minister that we've had in, I would say, several decades. I mean, probably you need to go back to the late 1970s to get anything better than that. Um, and, and and it happened in a fairly dramatic way because the parties that led to his fall uh, were three parties, uh, Matteo Salvini's Lega, Berlusconi's uh, Forza Italia, and uh, Conte's Five Star Movement, that are known as being the parties with strongest ties to the Kremlin. And so, of course, the fear and the, you know, sort of the, the debate and the fear was, was firstly, you know, to what extent was there Russian meddling in the Italian election and the bubble, what would this entail in terms of not only the election campaign, but the government that would uh, follow it. Now, as widely predicted, um, the right has won these elections as widely predicted because it was uh, essentially a mathematical certainty that the right was going to win given the nature of the electoral law. We have an electoral law which basically uh, has over one third of the votes uh, being allocated through, uh, uh, the seats, sorry, being allocated through a first-past-the-post system. Uh, And so the minute in which it became clear that on the right there was going to be a coalition, whereas on the center and the the left there was not going to be one. And the reasons for Draghi's fall explained to a large extent why there could not be uh, a center-left coalition, uh, given that Conte, the Five Star Movement, had played such a key role in the collapse of the Draghi government, supported both by the Democrat Party and by this new centrist uh, sort of uh, party. Um, So that was not a possibility. So we all knew that the right was going to win. And the question is, by how much? Now, perhaps the last thing I'll say in this kind of first round is to uh, highlight the fact that um, in the actual results, um, I was actually rather, may sound a little bit odd, relieved. (laughs) And I was relieved because um, the right did not actually win a two-thirds majority that is and would have been that is necessary to change the constitution. 
And, you know, there are sort of policy decisions that are reversible, most are, uh, and some decisions, I mean, you know, one only thing needs to think about Brexit, uh, and I would say the changes in the constitution kind of fall into that category that are irreversible. Uh, and, and that is unlikely to pass given uh, the, this, the, this majority, which as I said, does not reach two thirds. The other thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, this uh, election result has been talked about as a shift to the right. And I actually think it's not correct to talk about it in those terms, uh, in the sense that there's been a redistribution of votes within the right, rather than an increase of votes to the right. At the end of the day, the right has won 44% of the vote, which means that 56% has gone to non-right parties. Uh, and that redistribution of votes to the right has basically seen Meloni's uh, hard right party sucking votes away mainly to Matteo Salvini's equally right party, with the main difference between the two being, in my view, that Meloni's party is just, quote-unquote, uh, right, rather than also populist right. Cecilia, um, I'm going to come to you in one second. Really quick follow-up question, Natalie, because it's something I wanted to ask you, which is about potential Russian interference in Draghi's downfall. I know that you know, I was looking back at one of your Politico articles from before the election where you tease the idea that there could have been uh, potential interference, but still kind of an open question about whether there was any evidence that that was indeed the case. Has anything additional come to light on that front in terms of collusion or interference? As you noted, all three of the parties responsible for bringing them down do have really close ties to the Kremlin. I mean, I would say that there is at the moment still anecdotal evidence that uh, there was, uh, you know, there were quite a few conversations going on uh, and certainly quite a bit of encouragement, I would say. But if then the question is, is that the reason why those parties chose to pull the plug? I would say definitely not. The reasons were that drove them to pull the plug are essentially domestic political calculation. It's a calculation that in case of uh, Conte paid off. I mean, the party was basically, you know, given as being almost dead in the water. And at the end of the day, it managed to muster a sort of 15% uh, in, in, in this election, which is more than what many expected. It's a calculus that did not pay off for Salvini. Uh, but then again, he could have actually seen his vote share uh, diminish even further had he waited more. Uh, so I would say that the main reasons were really kind of rather cynical and domestic uh, rather than being Russian related. Yeah, okay. Those are important points. But I mean, and even in our election, like this very um, nasty mix of Russian interference tapping into pre-existing discontent and all of these sentiments are already present. Um, Cecilia, I want you to feel free to build on anything mm -hmm. Natalie said, but we can also dig into implications of what this will okay. mean, both for domestic Italian politics, we can get to the Europe piece as well. Okay. Feel free to pick um, up. If I, if I could just uh, add something um, uh, relating to, to what Natalie just said. Uh, yes, I totally agree on the fact that it's uh, the reasons are mainly uh, domestic, you know, the, the reasons for, for drug is full. Um, I also... Uh, uh, agree very much on the point that these uh, very, um, you know, uh, sensational titles that we read around the world, Italy's stern right, I, I don't, I don't agree at all. Uh, and, and another element that perhaps we should take into account is that the turnout for this election was the lowest ever uh, in the history of the country. So if we really look at the number of voters that uh, sort of um, chose Meloni, uh, we are talking about the 26% of the 64% that is uh, below 17% of the overall. So um, this gives you an idea of how Italy is actually, uh, it has always been a complex country, very fragmented politically. And in a sense, this gives us reason to hope that Meloni will need to moderate her positions. She's already started uh, a clear shift towards the center of the political spectrum in the way she talks about 
Europe. She was very silent about Europe, by, by the way, during the electoral campaign. She was very careful not to um, further you know, enrage <laughs> Brussels. So that she had big clashes with, with um, in that sense before, with, with the European Union. Uh, and so she's also been extremely careful to reassure uh, the US about uh, you know, her commitment to keep Italy into the uh, you know, NATO front when it comes to Ukraine. So perhaps from the standpoint of, uh, of Russia, I would say this result was bad after all, in the sense that we knew that the right was going to win, uh, but the party that won uh, the majority of the vote uh, within that coalition is actually the 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 one that's uh, further, you know, the furthest away from from the Kremlin in in a sense. And I would also add the fact that I would mention the fact that um, you know uh, the stability of the coalition is is a big question mark, and I I think that everybody is asking about that. Usually, as this uh, history of uh, uh, unstable coalitions. And uh, I think that precisely what uh, Natalie was mentioning, the fact that Salvini uh, did not do very well in the polls, quite the opposite, uh, is a factor of instability within the coalition. Actually, the uh, squabbling has already started. And now, you know, now we are in the moment in which um, they're still counting the votes. So we're still assigning the seats. We, and once we do that, there will be the phase of consultations between uh, political parties and the president of the Republic who will eventually appoint a new prime minister. And it, it is interesting to notice that Salvini has already started to sort of raise his voice because probably he's not gonna get what he wants, that is to become the next minister of, go back to the Ministry of Interiors. Um, so I think that's going to be a kind of a, of a, a bit of a problem uh, for, for Maloney to uh, a bit of a, of a difficult um, ally to, to sort of uh, to, to, to manage uh, within the coalition. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I think that's, that's uh, if I, I add kind of something else uh, to, again, what uh, Natalie was saying about uh, you know, uh, technocracy and the fact that Mario Draghi was the most competent prime minister we've had. That's out of question, right? But I think that that reliance on technocracy, in a sense, damaged the left, uh, the center left. So uh, Enrico Letta, who is also himself a very competent individual, not very flamboyant as a leader, as, as we see on the other side of the spectrum, but certainly uh, a competent uh, person. Uh, he really embraced the Draghi agenda, the so-called Draghi agenda, which, which is a very uh, clearly technocratic agenda. So in a sense, uh, the, the, the center left in Italy uh, renounced to uh, talk about politics. And that's, that's exact opposite of what the right wing coalition has been doing. They were super political. Um, and, I, and even the Five Star Movement was very political in the kind of arguments and, uh, and uh, reasonings that they put forward. And I think that at the end of the day, in this climate of you know, dissatisfaction uh, that we are, we are living through, uh, I think that eventually this paid off for, for these parties. Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's, a, that's a tremendous education both of you have given us on this. And I'm going to uh, just ask some basic questions as, an, as, as from an American perspective, sitting here and watching this, kind of two things came to mind, um, which are probably simplistic views, but no surprise there, as I'm sure Andre is thinking right now. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, but, but it's something I think people might might ask because, you know, thinking about our own uh, political situation here. So the first question, I'm going to put them together because they're kind of cousins. The first question is, um, um, you know, you mentioned the, how Draghi was certainly seen as one of the, the, the great, uh, you know, leaders of Italy uh, for many years. And that was something that everyone recognized. Well-respected technocrat, yep, uh, but well-respected. Uh, in, um, in, and ac across the continent in Brussels and in Italy too, I would assume that he was also seen as someone that was competent and maybe this is something good for Italy at this point is to have someone like him at the helm. So um, he was done in, it looks like to me, he was done in by a political cabal there 
these parties, these personalities, they were looking for the opportunity. And when the opportunity presented itself, bang, they, they did some maneuvers uh, there in the parliament and they brought down his government. Uh, and they brought down a government that was seen uh, by the people. I'm, I'm talking kind of about the Italian people were seen as someone who was a very good leader. And, and, and so here you are, you're in, a, you know, you're in a Milan or something and you're looking at Rome and you're going, my God, I can't believe this has happened. Draghi, he was, he was finally, we had this competent leader. Now these politicians in Rome using these parliamentary par party tricks have brought down this, how could this happen? So my question is, with that as the intro is, what was it like among the Italian people when they woke up in the morning and said, hey, what's, I mean, you would think that there'd be some anger towards these politicians saying, how could you do this? Your own petty political uh, uh, egos, I'm trying to be you know, extravagant here, but you would think that people would go, I can't believe this is happening to us. Was there anything like that? That's number one. And then the cousin to that is, as, you're as you were talking about the parties and this type of thing, it's, if you were an American, you would almost say, gosh, that sounds almost like a Trumpian thing, you know, that these parties got together, these right wings, some of them extremists. And, and I'm sure some Americans would say, you know, a party that came from Mussolini, these fascists, you know, and so all of a sudden there's this coup, there's this toppling of this great Draghi and by these, uh, by these people who look almost Trumpian. So I am sure both of those are wrong. I am sure I am coming in with a typical American, you know, wrong impression of Italian politics. So straighten me out. What was the reaction about the, 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 the Italian people? Were they just outraged that they lost this great government? Secondly, is it gonna be replaced by something that's got the smell of a Trumpian kind of thing in, the, in an Italian context? So I would say, Jim, on, on, on those two questions, and um, the, on, the, on the first, uh, yes, actually, there was a lot of outrage. Um, Italians, in fact, you know, the, 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 the contradiction uh, is that even today, uh, Draghi is uh, by far, uh, as in over and well over uh, Meloni, um, the leader that is most uh, respected and loved according to all polls. And yet the party and the leader who is likely going to be uh, the next prime minister uh, represents the only party that was in opposition to Draghi. So how do we make sense of all of this? I think we make sense of it, um, well, firstly, by saying perhaps a word on on the Italian public and how fickle the Italian public is. So this is basically the same country that in a matter of, you know, sort of months brings leaders like, you know, Matteo Renzi to 40% support and then crashing down at 2%. And then the five star movement over 30% and then down to the 15. And then Lega, European Parliament elections, 37% and now down to eight. I mean, Meloni represented not, which kind of then starts, you know, sort of flowing into the second question. People mainly, let me put it this way, the fascist vote is that same 4% vote that she got in the last elections, no more, no less. The rest between four and 26% is change. We just want change. And that change in the past meant Renzi, Salvini, Five Star Movement, today Meloni, who, who knows what comes next. Huh? Um, so I think there's something which is not a pretty picture, frankly speaking, that is painted of the Italian public, but it's not a picture. And this is why I kind of go back and, you know, Toshida was making this point as well. It's not a, a veer to the right. It's uh, this constant, uh, search for change, um, which which is, as I say, really kind of probably the only constant that there is in uh, uh, in Italian politics today. And then I think the other thing to be um, sort of pointed out is on this whole kind of question of fascism. So what exactly do we mean by it uh, today? So if by fascism we mean the risk of totalitarianism. 
um, then I'm, I'm not worried, to be honest. Uh, I would have been, not that it would have led to a totalitarian system, but this is why I kind of highlighted that two thirds uh, majority risk. Uh, because as part of uh, Brothers of Italy's program is the idea of a presidential system. Now, of course, you can have a presidential system in a democracy. Hey, you know, doesn't the United States, but hey, hasn't the United States elected Donald Trump? Uh, and so thanks very much. I'm very happy with my constitution that doesn't have a, a presidential system. Let's not forget, again, going back to the Draghi story, that the, the the craziest parliament in the history of this republic, which is the outgoing one, in which 60% was basically, a, you know, five-star movement, Lega, Berlusconi, populist, left, right, whatever, huh? produce the best government that we have had in decades. It's thanks to one thing, and it's called our constitution. So thanks very much, let's not change it. <laughs> so risk of totalitarianism, frankly speaking, I don't see. Then we get to the other aspects of fascism, which you know get us into the civil rights debate. Uh, so is there a risk of fascism in terms of a kind of highly cons socially conservative agenda? Now, yes, obviously there is that risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, if we were a country that was actually a very progressive country, if actually we did have uh, LGBTQ rights, I would be extremely worried that they would be clawed back. But unfortunately, or in this case, fortunately for what I'm about to say, we don't have them. So what exactly is Meloni going to take away that we don't have? I mean, is she going to take abortion rights away? I'm not so sure. Uh, yes, she may fund pro-life movements, and, but she's not going to take the right, uh, the right to abortion away. I don't see that either. So basically, kind of what you're left with is um, fascism in, meant as nationalism and Euroscepticism. So I think that's the other kind of box of uh, concerns. And there I would say that up until when we're in this crisis, meaning we're in this energy crisis, we're in this economic crisis, we're in this war, I'm actually not that worried. I mean, we are in a post-pandemic Europe that gives Italy money, it doesn't take it away. Uh, we are in an energy crisis in which Meloni herself uh, repeatedly says that there can only be a European solution uh, we watch the catastrophe, economic catastrophe, underway uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, that is kind of, you know, breeding a sort of sense of "I told you so" uh, kind of effect across Europe. So up until when this is the context, I'm actually not that worried that that Euroscepticism is going to materialize in in Eurosceptic and nationalist policies. Now, if we weather the storm and we get to a bright new world in which the war is over and we've defeated Putin and the energy crisis is over and there's an economic recovery and Germany starts talking about austerity once again, uh, which you know, hopefully we will get to that world. Um, it would be a wonderful world to live in, but we're very far <laughs> off from that. I'm not, I'm not sure that Meloni will be in power by the time we get to it. <laughs> Yes, please. Yeah, so if I can just uh, react to, to your questions and what Natalie just said. Okay, so I'll try to give you a, a slightly different perspective just to explain exactly uh, what happened there. Like how, help you understand because that was your question, Jim, right? Uh, what, what happened with Italian public opinion? How, where, weren't they angry? So a part of the public opinion, of course, was, was angry as, as Natalie was saying. But I will tell you that there were there were portions of the public opinion which were not really um, happy with Draghi. Uh, first of all, and and I, I heard critics coming from you know like criticism coming both from the right and the left. Why? Because after all, uh, Draghi, uh, as, as competent as of course he is, 
was never the leader of a party that ran for elections in the country. So he was perceived as an, uh, you know, an, an elect. We do, we do not elect. That's another stereotype, wrong stereotype uh, about Italian politics. We do not elect directly our prime minister, but he was perceived as lacking that kind of legitimacy that comes from, uh, you know, the electoral uh, vote, like the, the success. Uh, and uh, the perception was that uh, he was again a technocrat and Italy doesn't really have a great relationship with uh, technocracy, at least not recently, uh, because when you hear technocracy, the first, uh, as an Italian voter, the first thing you think about is Mario Monti, which was the prime minister, which who was appointed a technocratic prime minister, who was appointed um, after the fall of Berlusconi in 2011, and whose government was really a purely technocratic government, which passed a lot of painful um, austerity-inspired uh, uh, reforms meant to uh, you know, stabilize, consolidate uh, the Italian, Italian finances. So I think that partly explains that, uh, that uh, the fact that uh, a large portion of, of the electorate then chose Meloni and Conte, uh, who are clearly associated with the fall of drug. I mean, uh, Conte obviously directly and, and, uh, and Meloni being uh, always, you know, being part of the, of the opposition. So that sort of helps uh, understand perhaps what happened there. And uh, you had a second, I think you had a second point, which was very interesting, but uh, could, could you please rem remind me? It was just the idea that um, uh, for, for someone, yeah, for someone watching from afar, it's almost like a Trump, Trumpian style coup in the sense that, you know, things were done behind the scenes and suddenly there we have Trumpian and his people uh, infesting this country mm -hmm. and we're going on, you know, it's, and that, yeah, that's yeah. based on the fact that Draghi was looked on as this great leader. Yeah. And now you have this coup of these horrible yeah. Trumpians. But, but he lacked the uh, popular legitimacy. And I, I would tell, I'll tell you that, okay, if I had to play a David South advocate here and tell you what Meloni would have said to that, she would have said, well, I won the election. It was a democratic election. The electorate chose me. We are part of a coalition with an electoral program, which is very clear on what we want and what we don't want. So we have a clear mandate and we you know uh, power is, you know, the transition of power is perfectly peaceful. There's no scenario like a storming, you know, of the capital here happening. So it's actually the other way around. You know, that's that's the kind of argument that you, you would probably get. Uh, Which is very populist, right, Cecilia? Like that would be what an Orban would say too. I mean, right, like that I I've been elected and I have this mandate. I agree, Natalie, it's a great thing that it's not a two thirds needed to change um, the constitution because yeah. that's, yeah. it's into trouble. But I, I mean, that's what you hear from- yeah, but it's powerful. You see what I mean? Like it's a powerful, it's it, absolutely, it's populist, but at the end of the day, it's it's very, it's it's kind of convincing, right? Uh, so, and it, I, I share, I would say in, in uh, Natalie's uh, relief that we are, um, you know, we're not uh, facing a scenario where uh, these coalition um, sort of controls two thirds of, of the parliament, because that, that really, I think, would be the greatest uh, danger here. I agree. I agree also with, with Natalie when she says that, uh, for instance, okay, um, I would, be, I, I think that the concerns of the uh, LGBTQ communities are, are absolutely uh, justified. I think that uh, also women's rights, I mean, we could witness some kind of uh, uh, recoil there. But that's not the key issue because uh, because I, I also think that uh, they don't want to make it so visible, uh, so they they wouldn't touch the law, for instance, the law uh, granting women the right to uh, have access to abortion in Italy, because that would cause a huge backlash, and they don't want that. They will want people taking to the streets and protesting because they want to send the opposite message, right? So I think we're not going to see that. We're going to see some kind of creeping kind of changes. Uh, to these to these policy areas, but the real thing that really um, worries me personally is the institutional um, reforms and these presidentialism, uh, uh, you know, this spectrum, uh, the possibility of presidentialism. Let's remember that, uh, you know, the two thirds uh, majority point is very important because um, a few years ago, Matteo Renzi uh, was trying to push a different constitutional reform, but still it was a constitutional reform. 
And he didn't manage to secure a two thirds majority in the parliament. So this means that you can pass the reform, like the, the, the bill, but then it, it, it is subject to confirmation uh, via a plebiscite, like a referendum. And then that's when the people can really block. And that's what happened with, with Renzi actually. Uh, so, um, so let's see how, we, how it plays out. In this respect, the last thing I wanna say is that we should really watch closely what other parties do. So uh, for instance, these, um, the so-called third poll, whatever that means. So uh, Renzi and Calenda, this kind of center uh, coalition um, could play a significant role in, uh, because it, it potentially it can strike alliances both with the right and with the left. So we, we will see how this, uh, this plays out, but it's, at least it's comforting that they do not have already the two thirds of the, the, the votes in the foreign party. So I love this conversation. It's a little bit of myth busting for oversimplified headlines, yeah. simplistic yeah. American views, right? Oh, it, like you said, Cecilia, Italy's swing to the right. Well, you guys have you know taken that on and, and offered a more nuanced view. Uh, not so clear that it'll be overtly anti-European. Natalie, you talked about that. Cecilia, you talked about not necessarily overtly anti-Russia. And actually with Maloney, she's probably the worst outcome of the, the, these right groups that the Kremlin could have hoped for. So what, what, what do you guys see as the so what? I mean, in terms of foreign policy, maybe maybe you can dig a little bit more into what it will mean for Italy's policy on Russia and on the Ukraine war. And then the other thing that often uh, that Washington is interested in, but also our transatlantic community is China policy. And I know that Maloney actually has quite a strong stance on things like Taiwan. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what you expect there um, and where her, where her views, especially on Taiwan, um, come from. So I would say, Andrea, that uh, if I put these things together, um, so Meloni is um, very committed um, ideologically, I would say, I mean, in terms of sort of identity politics, to the notion of the West. Now, it is, she is, uh, I would say, for kind of perhaps even slightly disturbing reasons. So it's a commitment to the white and Christian West. <laughs> uh, so it's not it's not a commitment to the liberal West. <laughs> uh, so they're very different notions here. But the commitment to the West, uh, even in her way, does explain why there is a very uh, genuine, I would say, uh, stance on issues like Ukraine, or in fact, you know, sort of very gung ho, frankly speaking, on China. Um, but this is, you know, sort of well before all of the election, you know, sort of and the election campaign, but over the years, you know, she has had regular uh, sort of contact with the Taiwanese ambassador here in Rome. I mean, this is really something that comes from, from far away. And as I say, I think it's kind of informed by her identity politics uh, of kind of, you know, her sense of belonging. Um, so, you know, on, on sanctions policy, I've got no doubt. Uh, on Ukraine, including military support, I have no doubt. Um, the fact that within that right-wing coalition, uh, basically, sort of, you know, she, she dominates the show. Uh, you know, had it been a more uh, balanced, if you like, outcome, had uh, Forza Italia and uh, Lega collectively, more or less been on a par with, with her, then it would have been more complicated in this respect. But, you know, here we have two parties at 8% and one party at 26. I mean, you know, and she has been, there was very interesting um, sort of declaration that she made, um, that she made just yesterday, in which she literally said, I do not want Salvini in my government, he is too close to Putin. So the reason that she gave was specific, you know, as to why she didn't want him, which I thought was, was, was very interesting. And, and as I said, you know, I think that on the one hand, this is what she thinks, and on the other, now she's got the power to do what she thinks. So I'm, I'm not worried, as I say, you know, on that general sort of, um, both on, on, on Russia and, and on China, 
I think it's fairly clear what she believes in. I think, as I, say, I was saying earlier, it's, it's kind of on the European front that she'll be, to a large extent, forced to do what she doesn't believe in. Uh, and thank goodness she'll be forced to do what she doesn't believe in, I would add. Cecilia, you can feel, feel free to add, but let me put one more question into the mix, because I think the other thing on many transatlanticists' mind is the ability of European countries to weather the long, cold winter, right? So if we're in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war, um, certainly Putin is banking on the fact that with the energy, uh, high energy prices, inflation, all of these things, that it, we, it is going to sap Western government support uh, to, to continue to provide support and assistance to Ukraine. Um, where is Italy on that? Um, you know, do you think that the Italian public, um, well, well, first of all, what is kind of the state, what is the mood in Italy? How bad are energy prices, the inflation, kind of where are people at? And what is your view of their ability to weather uh, this winter and sustain that support for Ukraine? Noting that we've already seen protests in some places, Prague, a couple in Germany and other places, and we're not into the coldest months yet. So what do you, what do you think um, is ahead for Italy? Uh, I think that this is a super important issue. And I think I do not envy, frankly, uh, the, the, the new government because it's going to be possibly the toughest winter in, in ages, right? Uh, so that's uh, yet another challenge for Meloni as, uh, as prime minister to, to tackle. Uh, we haven't seen widespread protests in Italy yet, but I think, that, and actually it was very curious um, because the, the, uh, the whole summer electoral campaign was, uh, was they didn't really focus that much on these themes. I mean, especially um, political leaders didn't like to talk about these things. So nobody really wanted to bring it up. And now we sort of, we are waking up right now at the end of the summer um, to, to face these problems. So uh, um, the solution that all of these, the, the, the right-wing parties, but in general, all the parties uh, uh, have been uh, sort of contemplating is the one of a price cap. Uh, to uh, gas supplies, energy supplies, but I wonder to what extent that is feasible and desirable. And nobody's really talking about, for instance, uh, cutting consumption. Uh, so I expect these uh, issues to become more and more evident and urgent in the in the coming in the coming weeks. And as to whether these may perhaps sway the public opinion against the effort um, to support Ukraine, that's that's a, a huge question. Uh, I think that in general, the uh, Italian public opinion has been a little bit sort of uh, schizophrenic in a sense, because on the one hand, there's a certain clear support for Ukraine and the plea of uh, you know, Ukrainian people, the fight against an invasion and uh, in favor of democracy, et cetera. On the other hand though, uh, especially I think in uh, economic environments, there's been a lot of uneasiness about the sanctions, uh, about uh, again, the, the economic consequences of, so we will see how, how this plays out, but I can tell you for sure that it would have been much worse uh, just like, uh, as, as Natalie was saying before, had Salvini and Berlusconi been stronger inside the coalition. So that's, that's my, that my impression on, on this. Uh, this, is, this has been very, very helpful. And thanks again for that. And I'm going to take us in a, in a little bit of a turn, but not actually not that much. And that is, um, one of you mentioned Liz Truss and, uh, and kind of the, uh, the uh, wake-up call, if you will, of what's happening in London right now in their economics. But we also have in the headlines the uh, the pipeline so-called leak. Uh, and um, and so just to real quick, what where what do you all think about about two things? One is uh, what you're seeing in London, the what aspect of the wake-up call, and the idea of. Um, uh, of, uh, I guess, in some ways, uh, the while it's not Italy that's turning to the right, as you point out, there seems to be with Sweden uh, the recent elections with Liz Truss coming in. There does seem to be a well, the United States. Uh, there does seem to be a, a a right a right swerve generally across the the West in, in a bit. Uh, but uh, but 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 so what do you think about that right swerve slash Liz Truss and what's happening in London 
I know that's a bit of a dog's breakfast, but I mean, pull from that. <laughs> you put a lot you of want. issues on there in one, Jim. <laughs> I know. And, and then the last one is just off the top of your head, you know, where this, uh, this, this drama unfolding um, in the Baltic, uh, I, for one, feel it's very, very dangerous uh, in the sense that this is really a signal to me that the Russians can get at the uh, communications cables. It's not so much the, the, the Nord, Nord Stream 2 and the impact on energy as much as it is, look, we can do this with underseas uh, cables that everyone's depending on in terms of the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So just know that this, this can be just the beginning if you keep pushing us. You know, to me, that's the signal coming out of Moscow. So a dog's breakfast for both of you. Take whichever little bits from that breakfast you wanna talk about, and then uh, Andrea will take it home. <laughs> Okay, so let me let me sort of kick off on on on, on Liz Truss and and in a sense kind of implications for Europe. I mean, I hinted at this earlier, the kind of you know we told you so effect. Now, right. you know, I think what's interesting about it is that it, it's not j just quote unquote uh, kind of being so mad as to kind of increase spending in an absolutely incredible way. Mind you, because of extraordinary circumstances, but increasing spending in this way and slashing taxes <laughs> on the other, and you know, hey, your, your currency collapses, surprise, surprise. But the interesting aspect of, the, of, of that collapse is not just because um, it wasn't exactly kind of orthodox economic policy, um, but also because it busts, and this is why I think it connects to the European story, in a sense it kind of busts the myth of kind of, you know, global Britain that can kind of, you know, go it alone um, in, in this big world. No, this is kind of Little England, and Little England can't really afford to do kind of these unorthodox things because its currency is not a global currency. Um, it is not the euro, for instance. Huh? I mean, you know, it's obviously not the dollar, but it's also not the euro. So I think there's a connection, in a sense, between... Uh, you know, the, what the predicament in the United Kingdom and the concept, the economic consequences of Brexit, which I think at this point in time are a kind of very healthy reminder, especially if, and I think it's a question mark, are we seeing a return to the right and are we seeing a return to a Eurosceptic right? Now, I must say that on this second question, uh, I think we have to be very, very careful. I think, you know, I feel that at times, we end up being our worst enemies by hyping up uh, these kind of risks and seeing trends when maybe trends don't exist. Um, as, as we've been discussing over this podcast, I don't read the Italian vote as being a vote that signals a swerve to the right of Italy. In fact, I would even struggle to see the vote in Sweden as something that signals a swerve to the right in Sweden. Now, of course, if Italy and Sweden are then followed by, you know, Denmark and, and, and others, then indeed you do start seeing a trend. And, and let's go back to this. And my hunch would still be that this is, as opposed to the Eurozone crisis and the migration crisis, this is like, I would say, so I would really juxtapose Eurozone and migration crisis and pandemic and war. The former two were no good for Europe. I think the latter two are, of course, if we get the policy recipe uh, right, and I think we did in the case of the pandemic, and of course the jury is out on, on the war, um, but I would argue that um, these latter two crises, including, as I said, the war, are potentially crises that can sort of lead us to rediscover the sort of Jean Monnet um, you know, idea of transforming crisis into an opportunity for European integration. And then very finally on the mystery of the sabotages. Um, you know, so to the, to the question, you know, why on earth would uh, Russia want to sabotage its own uh, uh, infrastructure? Um, well, uh, there is, and I think, uh, Jim, you were pointing to it. Uh, there is actually, I would say there are two reasons. Huh? Uh, well, firstly, there's no cost in doing it, given that, as we know, these were uh, uh, gas pipelines that were actually carrying no gas at the moment. Um, obviously true in the case of Nord Stream 2, but currently also true in the case of Nord Stream 1. 
Um, and, you know, anyone in their right mind, and, you know, perhaps to an extent Putin is, must know that there were no real prospects for those pipelines really uh, coming online, seriously coming online again. Um, so, you know, as to the question, yes, okay, fine, there may not have been a cost in doing it, but what's the benefit uh, in doing it? Well, I would say twofold. Firstly, prices. Prices had been falling. Gas prices had actually been falling. Uh, over the last weeks, you know, they had reached a peak of 350 euros uh, per megawatt hour, uh, and they were down to about 160 up until uh, two things happened. On the one hand, blowing up uh, the gas pipelines, and on the other, gas from suing of NAFTA gas, which basically signals the end of gas going uh, passing through uh, Ukraine. And hey, surprise, surprise, Prices are now back over around 210, I haven't looked it up today, but around 210 euros per megawatt uh, hour. So I'd say one reason is, is prices, which then connects to all the points that Cecilia was making of Putin's gamble being one of Europe breaking and breaking against the backdrop of soaring energy prices. And then I would say that the second reason is the one that you, Jim, were hinting at. It basically, that goes something like this. Okay, perhaps we may not quite go up to that nuclear level, but there are all sorts of unconventional things right. uh, that, that, you know, war and hybrid war can lead to, uh, including attacking critical infrastructure. By the way, on this, I would say that indeed, I think we should be um, very alert to not just the energy infrastructure, but also telecommunications infrastructure. And geographically, I think we should be very alert that this is something um, that does not necessarily need to happen uh, again in the north. Uh, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the talk at the moment is uh, the pipelines uh, connecting Norway, both to the UK and to the Baltic countries. Yes, absolutely important. But let's not forget that unfortunately the Mediterranean is full of Russian submarines. And as we know, a big piece of our energy diversification uh, strategy comes precisely from Algeria, from Egypt, uh, and then, you know, sort of Azerbaijan, sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a real interest <laughs> in perhaps some incidents uh, taking place in the Mediterranean as well. Cecilia, I'm going to give you the final word, and I'm especially interested in your take. I know you even teach a course on populism um, about whether this crisis for Europe will give rise to more of these far-right parties. But Natalie, I want to pick your brain on one more question. Um, our uh, U.S. media is totally preoccupied, for good reasons, on this question of whether Putin will use a nuclear weapon. Um, and certainly with the illegal annexation of the territories in Ukraine, it's given new life to this question. Is that question dominating Italian politics? And what is the what what do you view as the sense coming from Italy and the likely reaction from Italian politicians about the nuclear threat? Is it going to deter additional support? Is there uh, trepidation? Um, you know, this idea that Putin isn't bluffing or you know, what you hear from the North Europeans is, you know, that they're undeterred, that, you know, this really should not change the course of the way that we engage in this conflict, the way that the Ukrainians fight the conflict. So how, how is this, uh, this narrative playing out in, in inside Italy? Well, I would say that, yes, definitely, obviously, there's a lot of concern. Um, but I don't think that that concern is translating into um, a policy shift in terms of our, in that case, I mean, they're blackmailing us, you know, let's just, you know, let, let them keep everything. Um, in the sense that I think that um, those that um, hold the view of, um, well, who really cares about Ukraine, um, had that view before as well. I'm not sure it's actually led to a shift. Uh, I don't think there are more people that were, you know, sort of very strong in support for Ukraine and now because of the nuclear threat say, ah, well, no, in that case, we have to give in to blackmail. So I think it's simply kind of, I would say it's, it's probably consolidated views on both camps. Uh, those that are in support of Ukraine support it even more uh, because of nuclear blackmail, uh, those that did not do so even less.
Okay, Cecilia, the last word is yeah. yours. Pick yeah. up on any, I know, like yeah. like Jim said, this really is a dog's breakfast, but I yeah. am particularly <laughs> interested in your view on, you know, previous crises have created fertile ground for some of these populist, yeah. right, populist yeah. parties to yeah. tap into and where you yeah. think that trajectory in Europe is headed. Okay, so I think that uh, the European Union cannot really afford uh, to not be uh, a good crisis manager. This is clear. And uh, actually, uh, just to give you an anecdote, at the beginning of the pandemic, Italy felt a little bit left on, it, on its own, you know. Uh, Italy was the first country to be hardly hit by the pandemic. And the first reactions, actually, by large member states like France and Germany was to stop the export of protective equipment, uh, even within the European Union, right? So there was this space that was created for, for instance, Russian and Chinese propaganda to uh, actually enter the uh, Italian public sphere. So I think the European Union must at all costs avoid that. Um, one thing that I want to say about the point that you were raising about is this, uh, you know, is this a populist wave that's uh, mounting across Europe? I don't think this is the case. And again, I think we should be very careful about uh, looking for patterns where perhaps there are no real patterns. And I will give you examples. So, for instance, uh, yeah, Meloni is in, will be in charge in Italy now, but she's very different from, for instance, Le Pen in, uh, in, in France, extremely different uh, when it comes, for instance, to secularism, really, you know, Christian identity. And also, okay, um, Meloni, yes, she expressed sympathy for Orban, but Orban, for instance, and the current Polish government, which are both uh, classified as populist, uh, they're very different things. And again, when it comes to Russia, we see these contradictions uh, sort of explode, right? So I probably see Maloney uh, sort of abandoning of, uh, Orban a little bit. Uh, I think it's very likely we, we, we will see that and maybe be uh, you know, closer to Poland, um, So, which is perfectly in line with her choice and the, the attempts at reassuring the US and NATO allies about you know, the, the Italy's positioning on this, on this issue. So take uh, yeah, every, every sort of a trend or claims that there are trends with, with a pinch of salt. All right, this was amazing. We really did some kind of myth busting of far more nuanced conversation than one might get from just reading headlines. So this was a really fantastic. I learned a ton. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Yes, thank thank you. you. It's been wonderful. Thank you thank so you. much. And, and sorry to be serving up a dog's breakfast, but that's kind of what we do. <laughs> we love it, we love it. Give it was tasty. Yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> thank you so much. Lovely talking to you all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.